You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, radiotherapists, and welcome to the last edition of Radiotherapy for 2017. I hear you cheering. I am Dr Doolittle, and you are listening to 3RRR. On today's show, we've got high science, controversy and news. First up, we have a special guest, Professor Mark Cook from the Graham Clark Institute for Biomedical Engineering at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne and Melbourne University. Mark joins us to tell us about innovative new research to help sufferers of epilepsy predict when seizures are likely to occur. Mm. We're also going to look at the survey by choice done this week, released this week at least, into surgeons' fees and their advice on how people might shop around for the right surgeon. Plus, Dr. Trainee Wills has the latest on long-acting reversible contraception, also known as LARC. My goodness, that was a mouthful. On the panel this morning, we are joined by the very Dr. Trainee Wills, who I just mentioned, our medical student extraordinaire, who is rapidly marching her way towards completion. We might find out where she's up to. And soon enough, we'll need a new name. You can't be Trainee Wills forever. Plus, the panel beater, our health sociologist, keenly trained to keep the bastards honest. Is that what health sociologists do? And a master of the microphones. So sit back next to the Christmas tree, maybe wrap a few presents and prepare to take your final dose of radiotherapy for 2017. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna kill my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. No, 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 no. I just want to do a guitar solo. Uh, can you sing a guitar solo? Probably not. Hey, welcome everyone. Panel beta, how are you, man? Top of the morning. Very well. How are you? You've been working for the last hour, helping the final show of Marinara. Yeah, that was uh, limbering up. Limbering up. <laughs> limbering up for the main performance. And trainer wheels over there. I feel like I'm about to sneeze, but otherwise I'm fine. I feel like I've got a bit of a hangover. I've had too much Christmas cheer. I don't, don't know. It's time of the year. It's all work functions. So it's, you know, it's like this work function, that work sure function. Sure it is. Last night, though, I went to the work function of my old job from a year ago. Right. You're still going to old Christmas party. I know. Shocker. I know. You're a shocker. I'm a self-punisher. Professor Mark Cook, g'day. Morning. How are you going? Great. Thanks for coming into our studios in sunny Brunswick. Pleasure. I gather it wasn't a long trip for you. You live in the area? That's right. Nice dash up the road. Oh, nice. And have you been um, preparing yourself, you know, the end of year, you've had all your Christmas parties and you've done and dusted? Ready I, wish to go? I, could, I wish I could say that, but I think there's still some to go. Mm-hmm. I've knocked off all mine, not least. Everything's done. It was, you know, every year, the sort of timing of Christmas and where it lands seems to dictate whether you're partying up to the last day. And it seemed everyone got everything organised. I reckon this weekend, at least for me, was the one. I even did my shopping yesterday. Who's done their shopping? No. No. <laughs> I, I've stripped back all of my Christmas present buying habits. Oh, I've stripped back too. Yeah, I've yeah. only got two people to buy for actually now, which is nice. Yeah. I don't do siblings, I don't do partner, I don't do no, just just kids. Yeah, I think that's totally reasonable. No, and okay. kids, you know, a lollipop each. That'll do. That's enough. No, a really? box, some bubble wrap. I, some... I do normally leave it to the last day though, so I was pretty proud of myself yesterday. I, my sister has a shop in Melbourne that sort of does gifts and stuff, so I just went there. One stop shop, oh, bang, handy. bang. And she was working, so I said, "You know, Jen, take me through." I wrote a list whilst I was there, secretaries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Bang, 
And I went and got the Easy coffee, as. so she chose... Oh, no, sorry. I chose the gifts myself. In fact, <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> Very There's some excruciating um, uh, statistic floats around the web about this time each year about how what a percentage of presents that are bought in Christmas are still actually being used. Mm. It's something God. like 80% or something don't get used Terrible. after. I know, yeah. and we all sit back and we all bemoan the commercial commercial commercialization. there's my hangover, the commercialization <laughs> of Christmas. Yet, on the other hand, we had this discussion yesterday, my sister and I, we sat there saying, we hate the fact that, you know, there's this sense that, oh, we've got to spend a certain amount on each person and... And we talked about how, you know, we, none of us like it from the kids' mm. perspective. You know, we think it's bad, this commercialisation. Yet, on the other hand, we feel we need to respect relationships and traditions. And we mm. know, you know, our cousins and our family and our friends have done so much for us that it, the present is as much a sign of respect for the efforts they've done for us as it is a present for their kid. But sometimes the kid ends up with like a $100 present from, you know, a, a damn cousin, you know, and they end up with $1,000 of presents piled up, you know, all the sign of respect for their parents. <laughs> and, and, and the the sort of the net result is little Billy Bunting is sort of a spoilt little brat with $10,000 of presents. I'm not referring to my own child who might have a relationship to the name Billy. Um, but uh, you know what I mean anyway. I'm yeah. going to stop ranting. Hey, we do some medicine. Yeah, all right. Okay, uh, trainer wheels, tell us, you've got uh, something about long-acting reversible contraception. I do, yeah. There were some reports earlier in the week, um, firstly from the ABC. They published a, an article online and then it was also on their 7.30 program. I think it was Monday or Tuesday, I can't remember. Um, and it was about dis- dissatisfaction among some patients with long-acting contraceptives, Mirena and Implanon specifically. So I just want to talk a bit about the this story because I think it's an important topic and there's also been a bit of controversy. Controversy? <laughs> controversy. <laughs> Controversy. <laughs> that was a that was a Prince version of controversy in case That's you're right. Wondering. Thanks so much, Tim. Controversy. <laughs> yep. Go um, so first of all, um, the ABC referred specifically to Mirena and Implanon, which are two forms of long-acting reversible contraceptives, or LARCs for short. Implanon is the small plastic tube about the size of a matchstick that's inserted under the skin, usually in the arm, right? And it releases a bit of pro- a small amount of progesterone and stops ovulation, prevents pregnancy that way. And Mirena is an interuterine device, so as the name suggests, it's inserted into the uterus and works in a similar way, releases a small amount of hormone to um, prevent pregnancy. And the idea with Mirena is because it's uh, working locally, the side effects are meant to be reduced a little bit, in theory. How long do they each last or are you going to get onto that? Many, many years. Many, many years. But the one under the skin, the matchsticky one, Mirena, which uh, one was which? Implanon's the Implanon. arm one. I think that lasts two or three years. Does it? Oh, that I think long. so, yeah. Oh, and Mirena's a five or something. I was about three months, but oh. being no, a no, shrink, ages, ages. Never, never actually used Ages one. and ages. So they're extremely effective. They're the most effective right. forms of reversible contraception we have. And most major studies show that these types of contraception are very... They demonstrate very high user satisfaction. They're very user-friendly. You don't have to remember to do everything every, something every day, like with the pill. Um, they're also very cost-effective. You get put get it put in and then you don't have to think about it for years and years. Um, and another benefit that many women experience is that lots of women will stop menstruating while they're using these. So if you've got endometriosis or painful periods or other menstrual problems, the devices can be very helpful. Yep. So doctors love them. Lots of doctors advocate for these products for these reasons. You know and what proportion? I suppose you're not going to, but about roughly, because I still sort of have the sense that, you know, from the patients I see at least, lots are on the pill, yeah. but I don't hear that many talk about these. Do you know the proportion? No, I don't, but I do know there was a study recently showing that even though doctors love them and they're always pushing for patients to use them more, they're not being taken up as much as we would think. Fair enough. Um, I guess because they're still newish. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, so I think because they've... 
a lot of the studies show that women are really happy with them. Doctors love them. So I think this ABC report probably came as a bit of a surprise. Um, they reported that some women are experiencing quite severe side effects with these contraceptive methods and they interviewed two women in particular about their experiences. The article's worth a read. Um, you can find it online. Maybe we can pop it on the Facebook. Yep. And The Conversation also published a response the following day, which was also worth a read because they claimed that the ABC's report was alarmist and damaging, which I thought was very interesting. Just as a you know, heads up for those who don't recall, The Conversation is, an acad- is a website run by academics and it's a coalition between a whole lot of universities and it's spread all around the world. There's a Conversation US. And so it's basically news articles written by academics edited by journalists. So it's fantastic if you ever want to have a bit of a read of the sort of science of everything or pretty much anything that you've seen in the news that you'd like and evidence-based, including politics. But in a very accessible news. way too. It's yeah, easy to read. Conversation. Yeah, and this article um, was written by the head of Obzangani at Sydney Uni, I think, yeah. so a big deal. So you get lots of really thoughtful answers by academics. Now, that doesn't mean they're not without bias. Exactly, yep. So I just wanted to chuck in my two cents, if I may. Um, I do agree with the, the piece in the conversation saying that the ABC's reporting was a bit unbalanced and perhaps guilty of amplifying quite a, a tiny minority of cases. So for some context of the nearly 100,000 larks inserted in Australia over the last decades. About 1,000 reports have been made to the TGA about problems. So I'm not very good at maths, thousand, but I think that's, that's 1%. 1%. <laughs> Although um, remember, I often get my percentages wrong. <laughs> so when I proudly announce 1%, take it with a grain of salt. But that sounded like 1% I think to it me. Is. I think 1, it is. 1,000 yeah. out of 100,000, I think that's I'm one. Safe. Yeah, that's one. Um, so some people are calling the ABC's reporting irresponsible by making it seem like a bigger problem than it is. And I can see their point. But, and this is a big but, I'm actually all for criticising hormonal contraceptives myself. I know this might be a bit of a controversial opinion. Medical student out on a limb. Yeah, I know. So just let me explain. The reason is because I agree that contraceptive or hormonal contraceptives are fantastic. They've helped women in society a great deal. I think they're excellent overall. Yep. But I also think that they do have side effects and they're sometimes very serious and they have always been dismissed. Women are always expected to just put up with side effects. So I want to reiterate again that I think hormonal contraceptives are very good. I don't think people should stop using them if they're working well. But, and that's the case for the vast majority of women. But I also think we shouldn't be complacent. I, sh- I don't think we should get stuck thinking that they're perfect because they're not. And I'm personally excited when any criticism like this comes out because I think it's an opportunity for us to improve these medications that are used by so many women. But maybe the ABC should have gone about it in a different way. What do you guys think? I like what you're saying. You know, I've been interested about people talking about the political context of contraception for years. And you know what? It's always been in the back of my mind that surely there must be a good book on the socio-political context of contraception. Because I've heard people claim, especially on things like radio, where it hasn't been a lot of detail, that contraception's been as important to um, the feminist movement as various suffragette movements, etc., etc., in terms of freeing up women from, you know, all sorts it's of things. It's tricky burdens. to know which, so, is, which is done more because they happen around the same time. So you sort of it's hard to know which yes. one influenced the other or the other way around. It's interesting. And I'd like, in fact, if there's any listeners out there who know of a really good book that actually explains this, because I assume there must be. Someone must have done a PhD or there must be a thousand oh, yeah, PhDs are, on yeah. it. So someone must have written a fantastic book and I'm just not aware of it. Another bit of controversy with these larks is that the all the pills, a lot of the pills have very old ingredients in them, so they're off patent. So there's a lot more competition now with generic Mm. versions of the pills out, whereas Mirena and Implanon, because they're newer, are still on patent. So it's within the medical, uh, the pharmaceutical company's interests to promote these 
medications more. So it's, I mean, the, the ABC was claiming that maybe there's a bit of bias from doctors from that point of view because they're getting pushed to use these products more than older versions of the pill and stuff. The, the, the corollary issue, of course, is that the, in the early days, the um, the one of the explanations, motivations of female contraception was to empower women over their own sexuality and their sex lives and so on. And then there's then there's that shift in the discourse or the analysis of the thinking of it is what about the men taking responsibility? Exactly and, right. And yeah. there's been relatively um, minor progress. On exactly male right. And with these side effects, women are just expected to bear yeah. this burden of not only child rearing but also, you know, if they want to avoid that, the side effects associated with avoiding child rearing mm. and there's just very little responsibility given to men. Yep. What do we need to do? Well, I think we need to invest more in male versions of yep. some reversible contraceptives. I mean, there's always... You always hear stories of things that are up and coming but then they never seem to yeah. happen. Um, and I, I mean, the feminist in me sort of thinks it's because it's just another way to control women's bodies or keep using hormonal contraceptives and... Yeah. Anyway, who knows? Why, do you, why <laughs> do you reckon the media... I, I reckon you're right on the media getting the contraception message a little bit wrong. I reckon it's happened many times. I've seen plenty of examples over the years of contraception stories being blown out of all proportion. I don't know if it's more so than other medical stories, but do you reckon the media buys into the um, the whole, uh, you know, the the politics of it too and, you know, sensationalises it unnecessarily? Do you mean in terms of the side effects? In terms of blowing out stories about it. I mean, I've seen a yeah, number of stories over the years where, you know, a contraception scare stories where it's then the GPs invariably come out a week later and say, this is overblown. They're all You know, fine. we've just had yeah. 100,000 people turn up to our offices across Australia yeah. uh, because of this worrying, silly article in the Which X, is, y, of course, the newspaper. danger, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And, I mean, recently, I think in New South Wales, an MP is pushing for a particular pill to be banned because his daughter developed a DVT. And I think this pill's been banned in some countries in Europe, but it's still used here. And it has been associated with a higher risk of DVT than other forms of the pill. And, I mean, obviously, that's his daughter's okay. She She's recovered okay. And obviously, that's a really scary thing. But I also kind of feel like one experience maybe isn't necessarily a good reason to ban a whole medication but then it's also been banned in other countries so maybe there is good reason to ban it it's complicated least information's out there exactly least the discussions occurring that's an improvement speaking of discussions professor mark cook is the director of the graham clark institute and the sir john eccles chair of medicine at the department of medicine uni of melbourne and he's also the director of neurology at st vincent's hospital in melbourne that's a mouthful he's busy um and mark's going to join us to talk about seizures so you know again g'day mark Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you in here. Seizures, I think, is just one of the great topics because, you know, there's so many terms and complex, you know, seizures and epilepsy, for example. A lot of people get confused about what's what, even that. So why don't you begin by giving us a little bit of a rundown before we get into this great research you're doing. What is a seizure? So a seizure is like a short circuit on the surface of the brain. The brain's like a big circuit board and if there's a short on the surface, it produces what we recognise as a seizure. Now, most people think of seizures as convulsions where people go stiff and shake, froth at the mouth and so on. But in fact, most people who are having seizures, most adults who are having seizures, having little seizures where they go blank or or get a strange warning and lose contact for a minute or two. And they might be quite subtle. But during that period, of course, it can be dangerous for them or dangerous for others potentially and it makes it difficult for them to do things like drive a car and other activities that might be dangerous. And this is what produces a lot of disability. 
Unfortunately, a lot of the disability results from other people's attitudes towards seizures. Stigma, you mean? The stigma's awful with epilepsy. It's still probably the biggest problem in epilepsy. So that people... Gee, are, that's amazing, isn't it? It is. In this modern time, people think it's contagious or a psychiatric oh, wow. illness or... You, you, really, you really can't uh, begin to uh, imagine the sort of misunderstandings people have about it. And it's simply an electrical problem. Do people still then keep their um, seizures, their epilepsy, secret? They do. I mean, people conceal their seizures because uh, if they don't conceal their seizures, then they're discriminated against, uh, particularly in the workplace, so that's mm-hmm. a big problem, uh, at school and, and socially. So people often avoid them. Uh, you know, I have patients who come along and tell me that uh, other people won't let their kids play with them. <laughs> oh, it's terrible, they it? catch it. So it, you really cannot begin to uh, understand the level of of confusion about this. I recall something medieval about this. Weren't seizures initially thought to be being possessed by the devil? Is it still a legacy from that kind of... That's right. In all cultures, this sort of view exists, unfortunately. And even in uh, some Asian cultures, the the names for epilepsy are appalling. You know, translated, they mean things like, you know, wild squealing pig and things along those lines. So you can understand that if you're branded with this, uh, and in some some cultures, you know, girls with epilepsy can't be married, for instance. Others might believe that their sisters might not be marriageable either, simply because it might run in the family. Mm. So it's when a big you, problem. And when you say seizures can be subtle, you know, just moments, are there people out there who could have um, be having seizures and not realise it? That's very common. So often you'll first meet people when they've had a bigger seizure, so they might only have bigger seizures rarely or, or never, but they might come along with a bigger seizure and then you ask them about smaller events and, and that history is revealed. Sometimes they've been present for many years. Rightio. Now, so my sense is the management of epilepsy has improved out of sight, particularly in the last 50 years, and there's lots of tests and stuff. But the problem still remains, it's like trying to predict when a volcano is going to go off. No one seems to quite know. That's what your work's about, yeah? That's exactly right. So epilepsy is viewed as being terribly unpredictable. You don't know when a seizure is going to happen. There are some kinds of epilepsy which tend to occur at particular times of day. For instance, there are seizures that relate to waking up in the morning. Mm-hmm. So obviously they're, uh, they're relatively understandable. But other seizures occur apparently randomly, and so that's a big problem. So for some time we've been interested in the problem as to whether you could predict seizures. And I was interested initially in this because some patients believe they can predict seizures or their families do. And you would have heard, no doubt, about dogs that can predict seizures and so on. And and so we wondered if there were features that we could uh, understand about the events that Mm -hmm. let us anticipate when they were going to happen reliably. (laughs) I can't resist asking... Can dogs actually predict seizures? I've, I've I always assumed this was a bit of a, like a, you know, a, just a wives' tale. I'm trying to think of a better thing than wives' tale. But uh, is it, it, can dogs predict seizures? Well, I, I have had patients where the dogs do seem to be pretty accurate. But, but no but research most of the time. to back it up? Well, people have done some work, but it's a bit mixed. So right. there are, there's a variety of views around this. So what is the state of... And when people predict it, is that what they talk about with their aura? So, that, you know, when... Like in a fact, migraine. I'm better off letting you explain aura than me trying to explain so it. The aura, the aura is just the short circuit starting. So the part of your brain that it starts in might produce symptoms that you're aware of. So that, for instance, seizures often start in the temporal lobe and the temporal mm-hmm. lobe's involved in smells and memories and things mm-hmm. like that. So if the short circuit happens there, people might have the perception that there's a, a familiar or unpleasant smell. It might be accompanied by a, a, a particular memory or the sense of a memory. But does that... Does that occur soon enough to give them adequate warning? Like, for example, if you're driving to know to pull over or something like that? No, not generally. So for most people, the aura uh, is very shortly before the seizure. Mm. Right. And on other occasions, although people perceive that they're 
uh, normal and, and operating normally during the aura, they're, they're often not if you test them. Right. So it's a bit more complicated. Okay, so you see in my head I'm, I'm crossing off things. So I've crossed off dogs, I've crossed off auras. What can we use to predict them? So the approach we've taken is to record the EEG, so the brain's electrical activities, the EEG. Electroencephalogram, did I get that right? On medical school, it was only 30 years ago. Still in there. Yeah. So we record that and, and look for features of the signals that help us predict when seizures are going to happen. Right. But someone can't walk around with an EEG on all the time, right? Well, they can. There's, there's two ways you can do that. We can put it inside the head. And so we did a study What's that? Wait a second, I'm just ago. getting that. Oh, what was that gasp? I didn't know you could have them inside your head. They haven't taught me so, that at medical so school. I so normally, that bit. normally we do that short term. So we put electrodes inside people's heads, usually when we're planning to do surgery on them. Wow. Uh, um, but we can put them in long term. So in this study, which was the first time that was done, we inserted electrodes that lived there for up to three years in some of the patients. Wow. And so we were able to record their brain activity 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which produced a lot of very unique data and data that we're still analysing because there's an enormous amount of this data, terabytes and terabytes. And from this, we're able to see features that develop before seizures that let us predict when they might happen but also we can see more complex patterns of the seizures so that we can see how they're distributed over the hours of the day and the days of the week and even relationships between unusual things like the weather can i ask what a potentially (laughs) (laughs) get out of here Is there um, is there different work involved in trying to come to an understanding um, about what causes seizures compared to work that you're doing um, to understand how to predict them? Like, are they necessarily the same thing? No, they're different things. So, so seizures can be caused by anything that that upsets the way the brain works, and so we see a huge range of causes, and that's one of the problems. So that, for instance, strokes can cause seizures because the damage that a stroke causes might produce seizures, and probably about ten or twelve percent of people who've had a stroke will have seizures as a result. They might not have ongoing seizures, but they might have a seizure as a result. Uh, brain tumours, um, disturbances of people's metabolism, like when they're critically ill, uh, genetic abnormalities, injuries to the brain. So the 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 causes are so wide ranging that it makes it hard for people to to understand the epilepsy is a symptom right okay so it's a symptom of of something disrupting that circuit board in there so i'm i'm carrying on from trainer wheels's gasp about the (laughs) electrode in the brain because when we all imagine um an eeg if you've ever seen pictures you know there's lots of electrodes all over the brain so if you're popping an electrode into the brain how do you know where to put it or do you put in multiple we put in multiple, but as well we figure out beforehand where the seizures are coming from. We can do that based just on the symptoms and mm-hmm. the imaging and, and other tests that we have. So you have a rough idea where it should be anyway. And so then you put that in, this, the electrodes in, and they're obviously attached. To it's a tech, the technology must be getting better and better, smaller and smaller and more and more powerful. That's right. The technology we had at that time involved a pacemaker-sized device that went underneath your collarbone. Which is roughly around 50 cents, is that right? Uh, look, it's a little bit bigger than that, the device we had. It's probably the size of a box of matches. Radio. And that broadcast wirelessly to a handheld unit the patient had, yep. and that, that gave them a readout of how likely they were to have a seizure in the hours ahead. Mm-hmm. Mm. And now, is it... And now, we don't have a, an implantable device that's available for patients currently, but we've developed one, which we're at the moment negotiating with a, a large manufacturer for. Now, this device just goes under the scalp, so it's a lot smaller, obviously. It's very much like a bionic ear size device, so the size of a 20-cent coin yep. goes underneath the skin of the scalp. 
and so we don't have any intracranial electrodes, so there are no electrodes directly on the brain. With oh, wow. So that must drastically reduce complications, risk of infection, etc. That's et cetera, right. Et cetera. I mean, a big problem with the with the electrodes on the scalp that we normally use to collect EEGs is they're very prone to, to artefacts, so they're degraded by movement and sweat and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Plus, you can only leave them on for a limited amount of time. But these ones that we put under the scalp could potentially stay there forever. I, do, I want to come back to what you can do if you think you're going to have a seizure because, you know, it, it's, it is evoking for me images of trying to predict the volcano which i've been you know reading about in bali you know all the science behind that and, you know they look for little bits of movement this you know little releases of smoke and etc etc and they have models and it sounds similar. so i want to come back to what you can do but can we just take a second to jump out of that conversation and into the conversation about medicine and engineering you know, and I'm interested that your institute is, um, you know, it's an institute of biomedical engineering. What does that mean? What's it all about? So engineering and medicine are very, very closely related, obviously, and, and they have much in common in that the treatments are often directed to solving a particular problem, and both engineers and doctors are, are problem solvers primarily, unlike scientists who develop theories about how problems develop, perhaps. So there's a close link in that way. But I guess the real interest is that there have been big developments in engineering terms of the materials particularly yep uh, the power supply for systems and all of this has led to work where you can construct new body parts you can put cells into artificial materials and these can be used potentially to rebuild joints and uh, we were speaking a little bit about that work before i guess yeah but as well you can create devices that can be implanted that record seizures for instance or record the operations of the heart or you can produce electrodes as tom oxley and his crew have done at smart stent that can be inserted into blood vessels to the brain which then record the signal from very close to brain and which could potentially be used to control robotic limbs right tom oxley being a young neurologist in melbourne who was a medical student at the alfred and i taught him and i tried to convince him to go into psychiatry he (laughs) went into neurology and now i've read about him in the paper about 20 times and uh, seen all these things he's he's a he's, he's a real talent um, so St. V seems to have taken a real interest in this link between medicine and engineering and seems to have, for the last 10 years, been building these institutes. Is that correct? That's right. So the hospital's got a big project on the Aikenhead Centre for Medical Discovery, which is a, a bioengineering facility which will be situated at the hospital on the corner of Victoria Parade there mm-hmm. on Nicholson Street. Uh, everyone's probably familiar with that, that large building there now, which we hope to replace. The old a, one, the old sort of yellow brick one. Home. Yeah, That's yeah. Right. I was there for a talk just about a week ago. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be used that much. It's not a ho- part of the hospital. It's more admin and... That's right, in the cafeteria and one yep. thing or another. So we're busy decanting people out of that at the moment uh, for this project. But getting engineers into the clinical environment is very important because I guess something that's always interested me is that... Uh, Engineers have lots of good solutions. The material scientists have lots of good solutions, but they don't know the problems that we have. Mm. And similarly, we don't know what they can offer. And as well, we all speak a different language, and this is a big problem. So unless you can get people together and understand what the problem is, it's hard to develop these new solutions. So I think in, in my own area around epilepsy, we've been very successful. For over 10 years, we've had engineers working in the clinical environment, dealing directly with the patients, and it makes a huge difference. They bring a quite different approach than we do as doctors to solving problems. I think it's, you know, one of the great things about seeing um, different uh, disciplines working in the same environment. Now, not only do you get the benefit from the working together, but one of the things that I've noticed over the years, it's the tea room conversations. Everything's very formal in the meetings, but you'll see people sitting around in tea rooms and when you get to different disciplines and they start gossiping about areas of their work and stuff, and that's what, it's the number of times I've seen, you know, 
conversations that have been quite significant develop in a tea room where someone said, you know, I've been studying this and stuff and X, Y and Z and someone from another discipline says, you know, I don't think you're quite got the idea of what this illness is. It's a little bit different. This is the reality. The textbooks don't quite explain it. And it's just, it's bringing people into the same environment. (laughs) Just in passing. So um, on on Friday, um, political sociology, um, went to a chemistry Christmas party. Yeah. And we have, you know, very similar sort of conversations with chemistry. I know nothing about chemistry, but you turned up to a place like, you call it tea room or in this case, the Christmas party, and um, and listening to the chemist talk and trying to make some links to what what I do was a bit of a challenge. <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but one of the Christmas parties I went to this week was a science one, and I was saying this to their faces, so it's not like I'm speaking out of school, <laughs> but every time we discuss, they're all scientists, everyone around the table was a scientist, except, well, me, arguably, and... Um, and uh, whenever there was a question came up about something, like at one stage someone was talking about their dog and they were watching TV and someone said, can dogs watch TV? You know, I kid you not, 15 smartphones came out. Google, 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 Google. Oh, this article says that they can detect colour but not movement. This article, and it was so what? funny. Yeah, I mean, wow. scientists are so inquisitive and curious, you know, so every question has 10 answers. Oh, I love the tea room conversation. So let's get back to um, seizures. What can you do if you can predict a heightened risk? What happens if I wake up, I've got epilepsy, and I look at my app and it says I'm at 60% risk um, compared to my normal baseline level? Well, what we'd like in the future is for people to be able to take a specific treatment then, or maybe that could be done automatically. We've been working with a pump-based drug delivery system, Mm. for instance, which delivers drug direct to brain, and we know that works. But maybe devices like that could provide drug only when it was needed. Now, there are other devices that can be implanted into brain that provide electrical stimulation. We know that giving the stimulation close to the seizure is more effective. They're hard to stop once they've started, but if we can give these sorts of treatments before they actually start, then they could work. And that could free people, a bit like you were discussing earlier, from taking the medications long-term with their side effects. And the side effects of all the medications we use are not good generally. I mean, we try, obviously, to try and find something that suits people well, but most people have problems with side effects from the medications. So how, well, how accurate are you getting with your predictions currently? Where is it up to? Look, it varies for varying patients and their conditions. So we can get 100% prediction for some patients. And I guess work we've done recently with IBM has been trying to see if we can improve on that. So we did work with them that showed in the patients that we couldn't predict with so well before, we can predict a lot better now. So I think um, we can get very good prediction rates in most patients we can get excellent prediction rates in some patients at the moment there's been a few patients who we found it hard to predict but we're still working on them and and these are problems we'll solve i guess something that's really been striking is how different people are so everyone's pattern of seizures is different so everything needs to be very highly individualized so once you've um, say with those patients where you are able to get a high degree of prediction um what do you then do with that information if 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 that um context or that trigger um is imminent does that person effectively quarantine themselves in a safe space with support at that time or, or do they keep going about their, their day? Well, I guess what people have been doing is using that to either take some acute treatment. So there are treatments which work quickly that they can take and we've been trialling that. Uh, uh, mainly, though, they use it to make themselves safe. Yeah. So, that, for instance, if you... Let's say you had epilepsy and you were doing the show, it would be <laughs> tricky if you were to have a seizure here today, right? <laughs> so you might, you might adjust your circumstances if you got up in the morning and saw that the seizure was likely in the hours ahead. Mm. And, of course, uh, other dangerous activities, you might not go out because the, it's the uncertainty and the humiliation and the threat of injury 
that's the risk to people. And if yeah. you can improve that, which you can if you can predict their seizures, probably eventually, if prediction's good enough, you might be able to use it to drive a car safely, for instance. Mm-hmm. You said that an aura, some, some patients experience an aura, but that's usually not a significant enough time ahead of ahead of time to do anything really helpful how far in advance are you able to predict a seizure with these sorts of technologies is it hours or days or Uh, tens of minutes to hours wow so so it's very effective predictive technology Mm. gee it's amazing hey there's we're gonna have to wind up this particular conversation but there's one question that i almost feel guilty asking but every time we have anyone on with seizures in the last year I asked this question just to see where it's up to. There's been a lot of press about marijuana. Um, And what is the role currently of marijuana in epilepsy? Medical marijuana I'm talking about, obviously. The short answer is I don't think we know at the moment. Mm -hmm. So there have been some studies published around particular types of childhood epilepsy and we've all seen reports on the news of spectacular improvements in in young children particularly. I don't think we can ignore that information, but we are seriously lacking good data about the use of these uh, substances in in, uh, the common sorts of epilepsy and in in adults. So I think it's important that we get this information. I've got an open mind. I think it it probably does benefit some people, but it perhaps doesn't benefit as many as, as is imagined. And we've got some trials going on in Victoria, do we? or there, across there Australia. There have been trials going on, and, and trials with marijuana gels and one thing and another. There's been trials in childhood epilepsies, um, but at the moment, companies are producing these agents, and they're becoming available. Although the regulation around it's still a little bit cumbersome. Now, we wanted to have a little bit of a chat about. Um some stuff that some of you might have read about this week. Choice magazine, or it's probably more a website these days than a magazine, do all sorts of surveys about consumer products. And they turned their eagle eye um, in the last month or so and published it this week onto the issue of costs of healthcare, in particular costs of surgeons. And the uh, gist of what they said was, we've been told by government and bodies like the AMA and surgical groups that you need to shop around because costs vary. You need to shop around. So they looked into it and they did a few, you know, the um, usual sort of shopping tricks like had a mystery shop shoppers um, ringing up surgeons, sussing out prices. And some of the things they found weren't that great. You know, in essence, um, the big issues that they came up with is that there's massive variations firstly, and that it's not nearly as easy to find out about this sort of stuff as you think. Did anyone else see this stuff? It's sort of a weird concept, isn't it, to shop around for doctors? Because it's not really a luxury a lot of people would have. If you're sick, you'd need to see a doctor, right? I mean, I guess with some surgery things, it's not necessarily urgent, but a lot of the time it is. You can't be spending months and months trying before you buy. See, but one of the, in, one of the big problems... And there's a lot of there's research to back this up, not just choice making this claim, is that there's actually not a very good relationship between cost of healthcare and quality of healthcare, mm. both in the public and private settings. In particular, in the private settings, one group did a meta-analysis, and I think they looked at I forget how many, but it was about a dozen to um, to eighteen studies of the relationship between cost and quality. And they found pretty much consistent... The conclusion of the meta-analysis is where there is a relationship, it's incredibly um, soft, it's not a strong relationship, but the relationship goes either way. That cost can sometimes um, reflect better service and sometimes reflect worse service, um, which I thought was fascinating in and of itself. It actually doesn't surprise me, though, because, I mean, maybe this is another controversial opinion for a Sunday morning, but uh, to me, I feel like if someone's charging squillions and dollars, their priorities are in the wrong place. Well, interestingly, that one of the factors, so when they look at what causes variation in cost, the big factor is competition in the area. So mm. if there's lots of doctors doing a particular thing, the costs are cheaper. Um, place. 
So, like, across Australia, state, across America, state. You know, this state might have a whole lot of urologists, that state might have a whole lot of ophthalmologists. Costs will vary accordingly. Experience wasn't a huge factor. A lot of doctors who have the most experience don't actually charge the most, interestingly. Because well, by but then they've already made enough money, they don't need to charge their patients. <laughs> maybe, I don't know if that's true. But the factor you're referring to does come out. They call it, quite frankly, surgeon ego. And I don't think we can just blame surgeon. It's um, health doctor ego. So the, um, those with a bigger ego charge more money. Which hmm. is interesting. How do you quantify an ego? I don't know. I didn't actually read the, all the <laughs> sub-studies in the meta-analyses. But the meta-analysis didn't hesitate to talk about surgeon ego. That's now, I got the feeling, though, reading it, that it was more anecdotal, that that's um, what a lot of people in the healthcare industry say rather than... Because, yeah, I mean, you're not going to do the international study of... Um, the international scale of ego of doctor. <laughs> you know, answer these 20 questions about yourself. One. How, how good, good do you are reckon you, you are? Two, <laughs> do you think you're good looking? Oh, but a good one would be, what car do you drive? <laughs> <laughs> How tall, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you reckon tall people are more arrogant? Yeah, in general. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Same with good looking people. Same, I'm quite tall, so I can say that. Same with good looking people. Definitely. And, and, and it's, that's cause and effect. You grow up tall and good looking, people their whole life say to you, oh You're my excellent. God, aren't you so good? I can't believe you achieved six foot. What an achievement you've made in your life. <laughs> and really so, hard. so you can't help growing up with a big, big ego. I should, you know, de- declaration, I'm not six foot. <laughs> And I might have a chip on my shoulder that some people might call short man syndrome. Um, but the other things that affected costs are things like the fees that the uh, organisation set, like the AMA, and also it, hidden costs. Like, for example, for a surgeon, the anaesthetist might charge separately as well. And you might not know that. There's also there's some other curious things at play, isn't there? Like, I mean, first of all, what's the metric of successful or good service um, mm. in, in medicine? Um, but, but secondly, there's, you know, peculiar... Um, um, uh, twists on on cost and uh, price with things like uh, plastic surgery, which is obviously a really yep. um, high end cost value yeah, to a lot some of it's people. Not covered by Medicare, so yeah. a lot of it you're paying completely out of pocket. Yeah, and so I and guess not covered by private insurers. And, and, and but mm. because of um, you know the high reward for some doctors. They would otherwise put that skill to something else, you know, perhaps, you know, um, recuperative surgery or something like that, but they go into plastic surgery. So there's this, um, um, I don't know, what, what would you call it? it it's, yeah, sends, sends the price mechanism a bit pear-shaped. There's a whole lot of factors that skew the price mechanism that make the relationship between price and quality not to be what it is in other areas of consumerism. That was a long sentence of saying you just can't trust the cost. So Doolittle, why would you choose to go privately? Oh, so that's one of the things that they talked about a bit in general, just this whole issue of a gap. So obviously if you go public, pretty much it's completely free. Oh, you know, know, Medicare covers it, the federal government covers it. No, state, from the moment you walk into the hospital to the moment you walk out. Now, if you go privately, there's various levels of costs. A lot of the services are offered as no gap. So the insurer has some sort of relationship with the hospital and the doctor to promise no gaps and they've made a prior agreement. So me as the surgeon, for example, might have entered into an arrangement with a particular company that I'll do no gap surgery for my knee operations. So my patients go in. Um, that's not... A lot of um, services, though, doing have a gap and the gap can be lots of hidden things that you don't realise, like you might be playing for pathology, anaesthetists, um, physiotherapy, all sorts of things, extra costs on to, um, for the room. The single room might cost more than the double room that you share with someone else, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was part of the problem. And with that in mind, they decided to do their mystery shopper. 
I love a mystery shopper. Um, I'm always on the watch out for a mystery shopper. I'm always, always. Um, I'd like to be one. Um, so it wasn't a massive survey, so I wasn't super impressed. What they did was they um, they called 60 surgeons across Australia, which to me is not really not an, an adequate sample, mm-hmm. um, and they essentially asked them about three different procedures um, of the various people that they rang. They, so they got onto the receptionist and, you know, they basically said, uh, listen, my doctor's referred me for a, whatever, a knee operation. And uh, I want to know, does, uh, what's the cost of having the knee operation at your, uh, with your surgeon if I choose to come there? And what they found is, I guess, what we're going to predict. It wasn't that useful. So a third um, of the people, in essence, I won't bore you with all the details. There's a lot. You can go to the Choice website and this is freely available. But in essence, about a third of um, the time they asked this question, they got nothing. They basically got, you'll have to come and see the doctor to find mm. out. And so you've got to get a referral from your GP and pay to see the surgeon, which is often quite a bit out of pocket, you know, a couple of hundred or a couple of hundred bucks, and uh, just to get the quote, essentially. Um, a third gave complete answers saying oh if you have a knee surgery with us we admit to this hospital we use no gap we use this or you you will be five hundred dollars out of pocket etc etc and so there was fantastic information and about a third it was somewhere in the middle in essence and on the basis of that they they um made a couple of recommendations as choice always do and their recommendations are pretty interesting the first and most obvious which people have been calling for for ages and i 100 percent fully support is we need greater transparency in Australia around our costs, both for surgeons and health providers uh, and insurance companies. You know, current, and that, this movement's occurred in a lot of industries over the last decade. Now, if you go to a financial advisor, they have to give you costs up front. They have to tell you exactly what they're getting out of it. If you go to a lawyer now, you get a letter on day one saying, this is going to cost you X, Y, and Z. This bit's unpredictable. These bits are predictable. Medicine needs to go the same way. And I feel like the last year or two, there's been heaps of articles coming out all the time about whether private health insurance is worth it. Yep. Heaps. Yeah. Heaps. I mean, every, every week, it feels like almost. There's some other commentary saying, no, nah, don't do it unless, you know, these particular situations. Yeah. It's and not- I think the insurance companies are trying to do their bit in terms of explaining costs and stuff, but there's still a heck of a lot of um, fine print. You know, we've got a lot of junk policies in Australia, and a junk policy is essentially a policy that you get that provides you nothing. Mm. So you get essentially all it does is provide you the ability to go to into a public hospital and get choice of doctor. And that's a junk policy. You're paying for something that essentially you can get anyway. You can go to a public hospital and get exactly the same care with that, that, that policy. So we both, so both our, um, in, our health insurers and us, the um, healthcare community, need to um, have great transparency. But the second thing they recommended, of course, is to negotiate. And they came up with a lot of arguments for this too. They said there's a lot of evidence that negotiation gets you a cheaper price. Really? If you do, well, remember, a third will tell you the price for a start. Now, given there is virtually no relationship between quality and price, you may as well ring around and get the third who do give you a price and pick the one who's cheapest. And then you can still look for other factors like how much experience they have and, and whether or not, you, you know, you like them and feel comfortable with them or whatnot. I'd also like to see some apps come out. I, the US has really developed lots of apps that rate doctors, rate my MD and various others, and they haven't taken off in Australia for a whole bunch of reasons, but that would add a little bit too, I think, if we had those. That last bit you were saying about ringing around and making a decision, it still seems problematic to me, you know, and, and just I think about my own relationships with surgeons I've dealt with or um, doctors, just uh, GPs and stuff. I'm often in conversations with them where I'm wondering, do I just hand over my trust? Because I'm not trained in this. I don't know it. So mm-hmm. I've just told you what this, my story is. How do I even be, start to assess whether what you're telling me and the way you're telling me is 
benchmark. You know what, good. though? I think that's a whole separate topic because I reckon there's a whole lot of ways you can um, assess whether your healthcare provider... You know, basic things. Have they got a public appointment? Where have they got their public appointment? How many years have they been doing it? What do they do to keep up the date? Are they communicating well with you? Mm. Do you have other people who can recommend them? Um, do you feel... You know, there's a, I think there's a whole lot of ways, but I think that's a broader topic. But Choice made this specific point that when you negotiate... Doctors mostly reduce the fee. And now their evidence for that seemed largely anecdotal. But um, in essence, if you go along and say, this is my situation, and sometimes it's obvious, like I'm on a healthcare card or I'm a pensioner, or I haven't been able to work for six months because of this problem and I'm very low on money, what is the best option? Um, they argue that you do get lower fees if you negotiate. Not only do the ring around, but then negotiate individually mm. with the surgeon. Yeah, that and surprises that's, me. That's, actually, that's my experience. Mm. Some of my mates do a, you know, uh, they, most of my mates seem to thoroughly assess people's, um, you know, they ask them, you know, how things are going. They suss out what's going on financially and they do try and provide, a, you know, the best service possible and they do try and meet people's needs. Mm. Hey, uh, Go and have a look at the website, though. It's on, it's on the Choice website. Um, it's called How to Avoid Out-of-Pocket Health Expenses, and uh, it's a, a really great read. We're going to do a bit of winding up now in the last five minutes. First thing I wanted to ask before we do thank yous is highlights for the year. Let's go to trainer wheels. Same-sex marriage is always a highlight for me. I think I've talked about it three or four times on the because, show over the last Is that because we played the song, Bette Midler? Definitely. Go, do the chapel, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, remind me. Why was it a highlight for you? Well, obviously, it's so long overdue and it's finally happened, which is enormous, really great news, although the method by which that happened was not ideal, but, you know, and anyway. But I think what was really exciting from a health point of view is how many health bodies came out and talked about the health benefits of legalising same-sex marriage. Um, and I, I like to think that was really helpful in um, mobilising the Yes campaign and, and making <coughs> it happen. I was, really, I was really impressed with that too because a lot of the campaign... Um, you know, it had the sense it was all about politics and rights, which didn't engage with everything, everyone. And I felt when the AMA and a couple of the big hospitals all came out in support of same-sex marriage and framed it in terms of health, the negative consequences of bullying, the negative consequences of not being able to openly express your sexuality, the negative consequences of being treated differently in a society um, from a health perspective. I, I, I mean, I don't know if just we engaged in that because we're healthcare workers, but I thought that was really good too. Mm, yeah, I think it's massive. And a couple of the big hospitals, Peter Mac, Alfred, my two last <laughs> hospitals, both came out with big campaigns. The I was really proud. The College of GPs did yeah, in the College end. Yeah, College of GPs. Yeah. Every, I mean, that was really good. What about you, uh, Panel B? Do you got a highlight? Yeah, hard to go past the same-sex marriage um, debate. I... I'll um, do the bit of the glass half uh, empty side of it. it. It was just the trauma of it all. Horrendous. Like you talked about it, a long time coming. Well, part of that story of a long time coming is, is how much so many people had to go through that was just pretty shit. When it frankly. did pass finally in Parliament, I sort of thought, oh, you know, this is fabulous. And then I immediately thought, but we could have just done this six months ago or, I mean, years ago, but we didn't have to go through these months and months of traumatic experience yeah. for the community. It so, wasn't worth the payoff of um, seeing that, you know, just the overwhelming support across the country wasn't worth it. I'm asking that as a question. I'm not supporting the plebiscite. I think for um, a lot of members of the queer community, possibly not. Because okay, it was, no, was going to happen anyway. Oh, that's the overwhelming know? message I've read too. Yeah. Mm. What about neurology? Is there uh, any highlights for you, uh, Professor Mark Cook? I'm going to be shamelessly self-promotional <laughs> that's, that's and say, okay. and say that's, the... the High point of the year was the development of our implantable device, our own implantable device, less invasive system, yep. that, uh, and our success getting a commercial group on board to help us turn that into a reality. And you had a big publication around it too. We did. And yeah. We've had a lot of uh, publicity around the system, but 
it's really going ahead now, so it's really exciting. Oh, it's always so hard to know when there's so many things going on, you know, isn't it, how big it's going to be in the future. Um, I think, guess my highlight was, um, along with the others, voluntary sister dying. I- I'm pretty happy yeah. about that. I know not everyone in the medical community, and in fact, half my colleagues aren't, but I saw that debate as a real, as real success, and I really love the way the debate... It was carried out, politicians doing things in a sensible way. Hey, we've only got a minute left, so I want to run through some thank yous for the year. Firstly, obviously, through Triple R for letting us come on every week. We love you through Triple R. Special thanks to Elizabeth McCarthy. Elizabeth is the talks producer for Triple R, and she puts us in contact with many of the amazing guests that we have on the show. She sends us emails constantly about media releases and organises people for us, which obviously brings me to the amazing guests. I think we've had around about 50 or 60 guests this year on the show coming and doing interviews on Sunday morning. My uh, heart goes out to all of them. And, of course, all of our trusty team. They're basically about four teams that share the radiotherapy airwaves, each with about four or five regulars. So all in all, there's about 20 of us um, who prepare all of these shows during the year. So much thanks to everyone. All our, our partners on Sunday morning, of course, the Marinara team, who celebrated their 20th year this year down at Baja and Rye. I popped down and joined them. And the freakishly smart scientists from Einstein and Gogo, who we're going to hand over to. Probably most importantly, I'd like to thank all of you listeners, our band of listeners, we love making this show and being part of Triple R. And the show has gone on for so long because of the support we receive from you. We especially love it when you email us with suggestions, thoughts, comments, put it on our Facebook page, Radiotherapy and Triple R. And of course, we love it even more when you support Triple R and become a subscriber, which so many of you did this year. So look, a big thank you, one and all. We hope you have a lovely year's end. Get some rest. Come back fresh and ready for another year of Radiotherapy in 2018. Love and good health to you all. Bye-bye. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.